Chapter Forty Three of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Once more. At the end of February, Ralph declared his purpose of returning to the Moonbeam for the rest of the hunting season. I'm not going to be such an ass, he said to his brother, as to keep two sets of horses going. I bought my uncle's because it seemed to suit just at the time and there are the others at Horseballs, because I've not had time to settle down yet. I'll go over for March and take a couple with me, and at the end of it I'll get rid of those I don't like. Then that'll be the end of the moonbeam as far as I am concerned. So he prepared to start, and on the evening before he went his brother declared that he would go as far as London with him. That's all right, said Ralph, but what's taking you up now? The parson said that he wanted to get a few things and have his hair cut. He shouldn't stay above one night. Ralph asked no more questions, and the two brothers went up to London together. We fear that Patience Underwood may not have been in all respects a discreet preserver of her sister's secrets, but then there is nothing more difficult of attainment than discretion in the preservation of such mysteries. To keep a friend's secret well, the keeper of it should be firmly resolved to act upon it in no way, not even for the advantage of the owner of it. If it be confided to you as a secret that your friend is about to make his maiden speech in the house, you should not even invite your acquaintances to be in their places, not if secrecy be the first object. In all things the knowledge should be to you as though you had it not. Great love is hardly capable of such secrecy as this. In the fullness of her love, Patience had allowed her father to learn the secret of poor Clary's heart, and in the fullness of her love she had endeavored to make things smooth at Newton. She had not told the young clergyman that Clarissa had given to his brother that which she could not give to him, but meaning to do a morsel of service to both of them, if that might be possible, she had said a word or two, with what effect the reader will have seen from the conversation given in the last chapter. "'She'll come to the parsonage yet,' Ralph had said, and Gregory, in one word, had implied his assured conviction that any such coming was a thing not to be hoped for, an event not even to be regarded as possible. Nevertheless, he made up his mind that he would go up to London." to have his hair cut. In so making up his mind, he did not for a moment believe that it could be of any use to him. He was not quite sure that when in London he would go to Popham Villa. He was quite sure that if he did go to Popham Villa, he would make no further offer to Clarissa. He knew that his journey was foolish, simply the result of an uneasy, restless spirit, that it would be better for him to remain in his parish and move about among the old women and bedridden men, but still he went. He would dine at his club, he said, and perhaps he might go down to Fulham on the following morning. And so the brothers parted, Ralph, as a man of property, with many weighty manners on hand, had of course much to do. He desired to inspect some agricultural implements and a new carriage, he had ever so many things to say to Carey, the lawyer, 
and wanted to order new harnesses for the horses. So he went to his club and played whist all the afternoon. Gregory, as soon as he had secured a bed at a quiet inn, walked off to Southampton Buildings. From the direct manner in which this was done, it might have been argued that he had come up to London with the purpose of seeing Sir Thomas. But it was not so. He turned his steps towards the place where Clary's father was generally to be found, because he knew not what else to do. As he went, he told himself that he might as well leave it alone, but still he went. Stem at once told him, with a candor that was almost marvelous, that Sir Thomas was out of town. The hearing of the petition was going on at Percycross, and Sir Thomas was there as a matter of course. Stem seemed to think it rather odd that an educated man, such as was the Reverend Gregory Newton, should have been unaware that the petition against the late election at Percycross was being carried on at this moment. "'We've got Sergeant Burnaby and little Mr. Joram down to make a fight of it,' said Mr. Stem. "'But as far as I can learn, they might just as well have remained up in town. It's only sending good money after bad.' The young parson hardly expressed that interest in the matter which Stem had expected, but turned away, thinking whether he had not better have his hair cut at once and then go home. But he did go to Popham Villa on the same afternoon, and, such was his fortune, he found Clarissa alone. Since her father had seen her in bed and spoken to her of what he had called the folly of her love, she had not again given herself up to the life of a sick-room. She dressed herself and came down to breakfast of a morning, and then would sit with a needle in her hand till she took her book, and then with a book till she took her needle. She tried to work and tried to read, and perhaps she did accomplish a little of each. And then, when patients would tell her that exercise was necessary, she would put on her hat and creep out among the paths. She did make some kind of effort to get over the evil that had come upon her, but still no one could watch her and not know that she was a wounded deer. "'Miss Clarissa is at home,' said the servant, who well knew that the young clergyman was one of the rejected suitors. There had been hardly a secret in the house in reference to Gregory Newton's love. "'The two other young ladies,' the girl said, "'had gone to London.' but would be home to dinner. Then, with a beating heart, Gregory was ushered into the drawing-room. Clarissa was sitting near the window with a novel in her lap, having placed herself there with the view of getting what was left of the light of the early spring evening. But she had not read a word for the last quarter of an hour. She was thinking of that word scoundrel, with which her father had spoken of the man she loved. Could it be that he was in truth so bad as that? And if it were true, would she not take him, scoundrel as he was, if he would come to her? He might be a scoundrel in that one thing, on that one occasion, and yet be good to her. He might repent his scoundrelism, and she certainly would forgive it. Of one thing she was quite sure— he had not looked like a scoundrel when he had given her that assurance on the lawn. And so she thought of young men in general. It was very easy to call a young man a scoundrel, 
and yet to forgive him all his inequities when it suited to do so. Young men might get in debt and gamble and make love wherever they pleased, and all at once, and yet be forgiven. All these things were very bad. It might be just to call a man a scoundrel because he could not pay his debts, or because he made bets about horses. Young men did a great many things which would be horrid indeed were a girl to do them. Then one papa would call such a man a scoundrel because he was not wanted to come to the house, while another papa would make him welcome and give him the best of everything. Ralph Newton might be a scoundrel, but if so, as Clarissa thought, there were a great many good-looking scoundrels about in the world, as to whom their scoundrelism did very little to injure them in the esteem of all their friends. It was thus that Clarissa was thinking over her own affairs when Gregory Newton was shown into the room. The greeting on both sides was at first formal and almost cold. Clary had given a little start of surprise, and had then subsided into a most demure mode of answering questions. Yes, papa was at Percycross. She did not know when he was expected back. Mary and Patience were in London. Yes, she was at home all alone. No, she had not seen Ralph since his uncle's death. The question which elicited this answer had been asked without any design, and Clary endeavored to make her reply without emotion. If she displayed any, Gregory, who had his own affairs upon his mind, did not see it. No, they had not seen the other Mr. Newton as he passed through town. They had all understood that he had been very much disturbed by his father's horrible accident and death. Then Gregory paused in his questions, and Clarissa expressed a hope that there might be no more hunting in the world. It was very hard work, this conversation, and Gregory was beginning to think that he had done no good by coming, when on a sudden he struck a chord from whence came a sound of music. "'Ralph and I have been living together at the Priory,' he said. "'Oh, yes, indeed. I think I heard Patience say that you were at the Priory. I suppose I shall not be telling any secret to you in talking about him and your cousin Mary?' Clarissa felt that she was blushing up to her brow, but she made a great effort to compose herself. Oh, no, she said, we all know of it. I hope he may be successful, said Gregory. I do not know. I cannot tell. I never knew a man more thoroughly in love than he is. I don't believe it, said Clarissa. Not believe it? Indeed you may, Clary. I have never seen her but from what he says of her I suppose her to be most beautiful. She is very beautiful. This was said with a strong emphasis. And why should you not believe it? It will not be of the slightest use, Mr. Newton, and you may tell him so, though I suppose it is impossible to make a man believe that. Are we both so unfortunate? he asked. The poor girl, with her wounded love and every feeling sore within her, had not intended to say anything that should be cruel or injurious to Gregory himself, and it was not till the words were out of her mouth that she herself perceived their effect. "'Oh, Mr. Newton, I was only thinking of him,' she said, innocently, 
I only meant that Ralph is one of those who always think they are to have everything they want. I am not one of those, Clarissa, and yet I am one who seem never to be tired of asking for that which is not to be given to me. I said to myself when last I went from here that I would never ask again, that I would never trouble you any more. She was sitting with the book in her hand, looking out into the gloom, and now she made no attempt to answer him. And yet, you see, here I am, he continued. She was still silent, and her head was still turned away from him, but he could see that tears were streaming down her cheeks. I have not the power not to come to you while yet there is a chance, he said. I can live and work without you, but I can have no life of my own. When I first saw you I made a picture to myself of what my life might be, and I cannot get that moved from before my eyes. I am sorry, however, that my coming should make you weep. Oh, Mr. Newton, I am so wretched, she said, turning round sharply upon him. For a moment she had thought that she would tell him everything, and then she checked herself and remembered how ill-placed such a confidence would be. What should make you wretched, dearest? I do not know. I cannot tell. I sometimes think the world is bad altogether, and that I had better die. People are so cruel and so hard, and things are so wrong. But you may tell your brother that he need not think of my cousin Mary. Nothing ever would move her. Here they are. Do not say that I was crying. He was introduced to the beauty, and as the lights came on, Clarissa escaped. Yes, she was indeed most lovely, but as he looked on her, Gregory felt that he agreed with Clarissa that nothing on earth would move her. He remained there for another half hour, but Clarissa did not return, and then he went back to London. End of chapter 43 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina